Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Father, thank you. Um, thanks for your word. Thank you for the way it gives us direction. It gives us instruction for life. And my prayer has been that because we've been thinking about the gospel for these last few months, which we love to do, um, that you would make a greater impact in our lives. We're longing for um, this past year, this past month, this past week, even this morning, for the gospel to drop in our lives such that it makes waves, such that there's a ripple effect of good news and hope in our own souls, and then beyond to those around us in our community. So would you be kind and answer that prayer this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So I was um, with my family a few weeks ago. My dad um, celebrated a birthday, and so the whole extended family got together. And um, while we're at dinner, I'm sitting next to him, and he is telling me stories of his most recent trip, business trip, to Asia. Um, He had spent some time in China and then also some time in Vietnam because his company does some business over there. And um, he told me this one story when he and his traveling partners were in Ho Chi Minh. And uh, they uh, decided to take the day off and do a tour. And tours are not, maybe they're this way around the world, but at least in Ho Chi Minh, you get on the back of a little scooter, a moped, and then your tour guide sits right in front of you. And I don't know if you've seen it, but the traffic in that part of the world is insane. Like, I think we have a photo of, look at this. This is, this is the traffic stopped, which never happens. The traffic is always moving and is moving fast. And there are hardly any stoplights, signs, things just sort of go. It's incredible. And so my dad's kind of expectation of the chaos that he would encounter when he got there was interesting, it didn't match his experience of the traffic there. And as his tour guide decided to sort of enter in the fray, it wasn't like she waited for a stop in the action. There's mopeds screaming past them. There's no stoplight. And his tour guide just goes right in to the traffic. And it's almost as if like a school of fish or birds in the air, he was absorbed into the flow and off they went, seeing all of the sights of Ho Chi Minh. As I'm kind of hearing this story, my dad's like electric with this experience. Um, I, I couldn't help but realize how oftentimes our own cultural assumptions about order, about um, success, our own cultural Um, expectations of what is normal and good sometimes are not fitting with objective truth or reality. He had these notions about what the Department of Transportation would do to a city like that if it was, you know, Minnesota Department of Transportation applied and putting things in order. It would just go completely differently, right? But in that part of the world, things just worked. And even though there was no stoplight or sign, they navigated perfectly through the traffic. 
it got me thinking that sometimes we have cultural assumptions that need to be checked. And I can't imagine a more crucial one um, place in the Christian life that cultural assumptions need to be checked than when it comes to prayer. There's something about the way that we in our country and in this city approach prayer that feels very normal but feels very different than the biblical truth. And so what I want to do this morning is consider as I close our series on the ripple effect what it would look like for us to pray as a church for the gospel to drop. And to do that, we're going to actually start in, or end in the book that I started the series in. We started looking at this book of Colossians, and because it lays out the gospel incredibly clearly, it has this crystal clear notion of who Jesus is, and it's written, as the first verse in the book says, to a church in a town called Colossae. Let me read this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. So it's written to a church in the first century, just about 20 years after the time that Jesus died and rose again. And it's an interesting church because they are working out the mission of Jesus in an incredibly complicated environment. This intersection of cultures and even philosophies, approaches to life and spirituality, have converged upon the city of Colossae, making the challenge of the church learning Jesus in all of who he is and what he has done difficult. Kind of like South Minneapolis. And this church now, with a newly clarified picture of Jesus, is starting to sort of work out the implications of that. Because, the, goth, because the, the writer of our letter here is hoping the gospel will have effect not only in Colossae, but beyond it as well. So we're going to look at the end of the book, but the end of the book can't mean what the beginning of the book doesn't help it mean. Meaning, like, when you study the Bible, you've got to take into consideration not only the sentence that you're reading, but also the paragraph and the chapter and the book and the, or the letter and the Bible. And so what we're reading is coming on the end of four chapters worth of handwritten letter to a church in the first century where Jesus has been clarified and all of the opposing ideas about life and reality have been um, defended against. And then he said, because of Jesus, would you begin to walk in a way where you put off an old pattern of life and put on a new way of living? And would you pray? That's where we find ourselves. There's a, a theologian that I've come to really appreciate his, his writings. He is, the, I think, one of the preeminent scholars on renewal, revival. He writes on the dynamics of spiritual life, and his name is Richard Loveless. And listen to what he says. Deficiency in prayer both reflects and reinforces attention towards God, inattention toward God. Deficiency in prayer both reflects and reinforces inattention toward God. Man, that was helpful to me over the last couple of weeks as I pondered prayer. Because I think if we as a church want to spread the awareness of God, we've got to be attentive in prayer. 
If we as a church want people to come alive to the good news of King Jesus, then we've got to be wrestling with God in prayer. And if we deeply want the gospel to not only impact us, but then begin to ripple outward into the community around us, we have got to be a people devoted to prayer. This is the case all throughout history with Jesus' model as he walked the earth, with the early church leaders as they gathered and waited for the Spirit of God to fall down, all the way into Antioch where the gospel bridged all of those racial, economic, and ethnic barriers, creating one church in the first century among diverse peoples. The Spirit of God dropped in those moments, and the people of God were praying for it. So this morning what I want to do is study these verses. And then I want to review our series, and then I want to apply this teaching on prayer to us. That's our roadmap today. We're going to study, we're going to review, a little bit of school, and then we're going to take it home to application, okay? So read again with me. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. This word, these two words, continue steadfastly, is actually one word in the original language that was written in the Greek. It's proskatereo, which is to stick close by, to attach yourself to, to wait on, to even be faithful. It's, it's the whole idea of like busying yourself with something, being occupied with it, and then persisting in it. As I thought about this word, I was reminded of the season of my life, um, the hardest job I've had until this one, by the way. Um, you guys are, I love you, but this is sometimes some hard work. Um, but the hardest job I had until this one was being a pastoral assistant. I shadowed this leader of a church. I assisted him. I did everything possible to make his leadership world flourish. I was devoted to him and his work. I followed close by, like physically at times, and of course in our workflow. I had the challenge, and if you've ever had a good assistant, of being both like behind, always waiting for delegation and for instruction, but then trying to be before, anticipating, seeing before what this person might need. I was so devoted and attentive to this person. Maybe some of you have been an assistant like that and you know, or maybe that's sort of far from your experience, but you have had a younger brother or sister who's followed you around day by day, who's said what you say, who's done what you did, who's always on your heels, pattering after you, what you do. You've known that sibling that tags along always and will just never seem to stop. And if you don't have siblings, perhaps it's that beloved canine that's always at your heel, that is devoted, that loves you, that's with you, that is persistent next to you. That's what this word is. Continue steadfastly in prayer. But what's your posture when it comes to prayer? Is prayer your constant companion? Is prayer such a devotion of yours that it's always ready and right with you? You're constantly going to it because you know that you need it. You know what I love about this word is it's actually in a tense that's really helpful and kind of encouraging to me. It's in the present active imperative tense, meaning it's ongoing. And so when you think about what it means to continue steadfastly, if you haven't started praying, the Bible's clearly saying, start, 
Come on, we can do this. And if you have, and you've sort of found yourself fumbling, figuring out how to pray and to carve out time in your schedule to seek the Lord, the command is keep going because you'll never arrive. You're always on the journey towards a far more abundant life of prayer and communication with the living God. But I wonder if the words of the Proverbs might be actually helpful here because they're so clear. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Could it be that some of our spiritual life is lacking because we are not diligent in prayer? The promise of God's word is that we will be supplied if we pursue. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This word watchful means to be awake, to be fully alive, to be on the watch, constant in readiness. And then the word for thanksgiving is actually Eucharistia, which is the word that the Catholic Church gets for Eucharist and for Mass. It's a word that means thanksgiving. And so our Catholic friends, as they celebrate Mass, which we'll do something parallel as we celebrate communion at the end of our worship gathering, is an offering of thanks to God for the body of Jesus broken and the blood of Jesus poured out. Be watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. Now, here's the deal. Y'all know what this means. I mean, I, I've been to the bar with some of you when we watched the Vikings play. All right, we have some football fans in the room, and you all know what it means to watch, right? You know what it means to be in constant readiness. Like, you play around, you're kind of joking with your friends, having a good time, but you're on the edge of your seat. You know what the sound of that official's whistle is like. You know what it's like when a first down is almost there. You can sniff it. You can smell it. You're bleeding purple. And there is a readiness about you on the edge of your seat to explode with thanksgiving when your team moves. What if there was that kind of posture in us about prayer? What if there was an eagerness to see God on the move down the field? What if there was this readiness to go, God's going to come through. This is my play. I know it. He's here. And I'm ready to shout in thanksgiving. Man, we could do with a little more shouting up in this place. A little bit less when we're watching the Vikings. Maybe a little bit more on Sunday mornings. You get some of those out on Sunday mornings, you'll have a little less antsiness on Sunday afternoons. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. This is the key to the passage for me that God would open a door for the gospel to go forward. This word means open. <laughs> it means to give access to, to take something that is shut, closed, sealed, and make it accessible. 
And so Paul is inviting this church to pray for his own ministry such that the gospel would continue to, as he says at the beginning of the book, bear fruit and keep growing and expanding for the kingdom of God to move forward. And in order for that to happen, in order for a gospel ripple effect to take place, we must pray. If you're wondering, what is the key? How how do we start and propel forward a movement of the gospel? The answer is prayer. The answer is prayer, that God may open to us a door. But here's the deal, friends. How do you think doors open? This is where your own cultural norms and your own ways of doing things, whether it's on the streets of the town or whether it's in your own workplace or in your life or in your family, this is where our own expectations of how things go start to get realigned with the biblical truth. Because if you and I are honest, our approach to opening doors reveals why prayer is so difficult to us. I mean, many of us would say prayer is a struggle because of busyness. We are busy people. And busyness has become sort of an acceptable practice in our day, if not even an honor. We are occupied with things. We are busy. There is much going on. We're doing a lot. We're important people. But busyness has a way of distracting us from prayer. And we've almost forgotten that the Proverbs say that Diligence leads to abundance, not busyness. There's a difference there. Certainly some of Christianity in our day has lost the impact that it would have because its theology, its convictions no longer square with biblical truth, but have spread their way into the more cultural norms and expectations of the day. But I would venture to say that not just our beliefs, but the behaviors of the church our significant reason for the gospel not speeding ahead. We have forgotten how to pray. Devotion, dependence, desire for God are lacking. But could it be that we haven't made room for them? Could it be that the space to pray and to engage with the Lord and to wrestle with them is so lacking within our current culture and the expectations of how life goes that we actually don't have the richly supplied description that the Proverbs tell us? One of my favorite gospel artists is a guy named Jonathan McReynolds, who's a young artist, but in some ways I think is functioning as a prophet to our time when he writes, I find space for what I treasure. I make time for what I want. I choose my priorities. Jesus, you're my number one. So I will make room for you. I will prepare for two so that you don't feel that you can't live here. Please live in me. You see, beneath all our busyness is something far more subtle and sinister. This is what the, the great pastor and spiritual leader A.W. Tozer called the self-life. It is that streak within us, the impulse towards self-reliance apart from dependence. That consistent thing that says we can go on our own. It's the thing that makes us believe that doors 
open by persistence, not by prayer. It's the thing that tells us that by our own positivity, doors will open, not by prayer. It's the thing that says ourselves and our strength, not God's spirit, are the key to opening doors. But nothing could be farther from reality and objective truth. Of course, there's some merit in you putting effort towards an endeavor. Of course, there's some truth to the fact that you and I need to be positive in life. But if we believe our own efforts open the doors, we will suffer when it comes to prayer constantly. That God would open a door for the gospel to speed forward so that the Apostle Paul could declare, which sounds very fancy, the mystery of Christ. It's actually the same word at the end of the sentence, to speak. And I love it. I don't know if you are helped by this, but like when, he's, when he prays to be clear when he's talking to people about Jesus, I'm like, amen. I mean, like, I don't, if the apostle Paul is worried about him jumbling in a conversation and going, I don't know if you've been there trying to tell somebody about the faith or you're, you're just even just having a spiritual conversation. If you're like, blah, 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 blah. I'm trying to say something. I don't even know what's coming out of my mouth. He's praying for clarity. How much could we pray for clarity or at least have a little bit of hope that our feeble attempts to begin to explain the mystery of Jesus might fall on good ears? Listen, let's review. Let's review. You know, for the past three months, I've been teaching you, preaching on the mission of God and how the gospel can make an effect that ripples far beyond us. And I want to run you through some of the themes. Of course, we had to start in the right place, which was at the gospel itself. What is the good news of Jesus? To understand who Jesus is and what he has done as the only true good news message of hope that our world needs. And so I challenge you, would you embrace the reality of the incarnation, that God himself, the eternal being, came and put on flesh and dwelled among us as the long-awaited king and Messiah, the answer to all of your hopes and longings. And then I challenge you to embrace the substitutionary work of Jesus, that he's the sacrifice that you and I need. We need someone to do the time for our crimes. We need to know that he died for me substitution, but we also need to embrace the reality of restoration. Not just did Jesus work redemption individually, but he set it about cosmically, triumphing over the powers and principalities, the evil working systems within our world. Jesus has put under his foot and one day will right the wrongs in our world completely to embrace the fullness of the gospel might begin to then propel us outward. But that's not enough. I wanted you to understand God's mission. He's got a purpose. There's a cause that God is after, and he's been working on all throughout times, throughout time. And, and if you understood God's mission, perhaps then you might begin to embrace your part in his mission, which is the primary role. You and I are plan A for Jesus moving forward his mission in the world. You and I are the ones God wants to use, which easily helps you see that where God's placed you and whom God's placed you around matter eternally. That redemption travels through relationships 
and that the relationships you have are the means by which God wants to flow grace into the world. He doesn't want to do short-circuited things or mediated things. He wants to work through you to reach others. And then Pastor Charles said last week that it's not just that relationships matter. It's that the character of your own life of integrity the way in which you not give yourself to just the ceremonial spiritual stuff, but the truly good way of life, such that people around you begin to ask spiritual questions because you're there. That you begin to live in a way that puts away evil and puts good on lights that are bright. You begin to live in a way that is of integrity and is full of compassion. And this morning, I want to wrap by saying, let's pray. Do you realize that we spent three months talking about mission without me ever telling you to tell someone about Jesus? The church needs a wholesale rethinking about what the mission of God is and how we engage in it as the very sent ones of God who have been sent by a missionary God who is at work in the world. And now, I want you to see that the inner life of prayer and the outer life of proclamation or speaking about Jesus are connected. Because that's where Paul goes. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to, you ought to answer each person. Listen, the main point of this is that your prayer life and your speaking life are connected. They must be connected as your speaking about Jesus is to overflow from your heart for Jesus in worship and in prayer. But my concern is that for some of us, the gospel has not dropped because if we sort of extend the metaphor the primary elements of who Jesus is and what he's done haven't sunk down deep enough. There is perhaps not water to receive them, but ice by your own moral sensibilities or perhaps your own moral indifference, choosing to go your own way in life. Or maybe if it's not an icy heart, there is a misty heart within you flying around, captured by all of the many things of this life, distracted by so many things that you are doing and not seeing yourself as a part of the one grand thing that God is doing. But water, receptive, source of life and nourishment. If God, by his grace, would make our souls like that so that we might begin to ripple outward, oh, that's my prayer. That's my prayer. And if we did that, perhaps we might walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And if you here this morning feel like, maybe I'm an outsider to the faith. I'm not quite sure if I believe Jesus. I'm not quite sure if I trust this book is true. Why don't you listen to the way that Christians are supposed to talk with you? Wisdom, not folly. Respect, not belligerence insight, not just sort of whims or crazy ideas. 
Christians are to make the best use of the time. What if your experience talking with a Christian was like that? They're not wasting your time and you're not wasting their time. Their speech is so gracious and gentle that it's enjoyable to speak with them. Let your speech be seasoned with salt and preserving so that you may know how to answer each person. What if the Christians in your life, what if we began to answer the questions that people actually had? What if we were humble enough to say, hey, what are your questions about the faith? What if we sought the best we could to answer them, to wrestle through them, as difficult as they may be? Perhaps we might be the most enjoyable people on the face of the planet to talk to. All right. We got to apply some of this for a minute. I've already said much, um, but I want to leave you with some very tangible things. So here, let's do very quickly three ways to pray. And then I'm going to give you three things to pray for our church. Cool? Three ways to pray. I love the old proverb that says, the journey of a thousand miles begins with what? A single step. And so it is with prayer. But perhaps these might be a map for the first few miles for you. Some friends of mine from Omaha have been encouraging their church to do this, to start their day with 15 minutes of prayer. Sometime in your morning routine, sometime before you head off and race to work, to pause and to begin to pray. Now, 15 minutes may seem like a long time for you. You're like grabbing your coffee and running out the door trying to get somewhere, right? But, but listen, let me show you how 15 minutes can go. They would encourage you to spend five minutes just being present with God. Saying, God, here I am. I'm feeling this today. This is bugging me. It's on my mind today. This is the lie that I'm tempted to believe right now. These are the truths that I know you've spoken over me that I want to cling to today. This is me. God, I'm here, and I'm with you, and I need you. To present your very self to God for just a few minutes, how rare is that? Even in all of our religious activities, so infrequently do we just say, God, here I am. And then to spend five minutes working through your calendar. I've got that meeting in the morning. I've got that lunch conversation, which may be difficult. In the afternoon, I know I need to get those five things done, and I feel like I can only fit three. And then in the evening, that couple's coming over, and we're having dinner. And to pray with Jesus and say, Lord, help me to serve you in these situations. Give me insight in how to love and how to care for these people. Help me to do my work in a way that honors you and to do it with excellence. To walk through your day with the Lord ahead of time. And then to zoom from the micro, five minutes, to the macro for five minutes and say, this is, this is what needs to change in my life. This is the issue going on in my marriage that just needs to be sorted. Would you answer it, Lord? This is going on with my neighbors. This is struggle for our city. These are the big things that if you pray day by day with eager expectation for God to move, you attune yourself to the way that he's working in the world and leave yourself open to be molded and shaped by him. Five, five, five. But if 15 minutes is too much, why don't you start with four? Four minutes. You could pray through the A-C-T-S 
Acts method of prayer. You could spend a minute and just adore God. It's a great place to start. Jesus did that in the, the Lord's Prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. But if you just said for a minute, God, you're beautiful, God, you're holy, God, you're just, God, you're good, God, you're all-knowing, God, you're powerful, I worship you. And then you took a second minute to go, gosh, I'm, I'm so fallen. I know I screwed this up yesterday. I know I yelled at that person already today. I know that I've been anxious about this in the last five minutes. If you confessed some of your sin just for a minute and then moved on to thanksgiving, thanking God for the things that you see him doing in your life and in your world, and then if you ended the four minutes by saying, God, if you could just respond to these requests, if you could supply, if you could answer my supplications is the, is the Bible word, right, I would be so much better off. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, four minutes of prayer. Or perhaps you're ready to go beast mode. You're like, 15 minutes, four minutes? Come on, pasta. Give me a challenge. Well, hey, what if you took up the ancient practice of the daily office, the daily work of a Christian, which for all history, many sections of Christianity have paused three times a day to pray. And they pause in the morning hours, at midday, and in the evening as a way of recalibrating themselves for five minutes or 15 minutes, or if they've got the time even longer, but to say, Lord, I'm here with you. And this is what's going on in my world. And attune me to what you're doing in your world. It is the work of the Christian to keep in step with God. Three times a day, pausing. I wonder how busy you would feel after doing that for a month. Listen, even with methods, there are still obstacles. I already quoted this guy, Dr. Richard Loveless, who is the, the chief theologian of spiritual revival and renewal, but he says there is a force against us when it comes to prayer, something that makes us resist, and it's this barrier that has to be broken, and look at this. He says, sometimes it is forgotten that if the devil can tempt us to do evil, he can also tempt us not to do good. He can glamorize sin, but he can also paint an ugly picture in our minds of any work which is the will of God, including prayer. How often has prayer been ugly to you? How often has the thought of pulling away and trying to pray been like, ah. How often has the prayer gathering or the prayer time when you're with others been like, could this just get over Maybe there is a force resisting you. And look at it. He goes on. Quietly, undetectably, he, that's Satan, can embitter the image of prayer on our minds until we will unconsciously go out of our way to avoid it. The reason for this persistence on his part is obvious. And it's adroitly summed up in the old couplet. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. You have methods, you have motivation, 
which is the gospel itself. God doesn't want to just sort of melt your icy heart into water so that he can sort of flow through you like you're some substance of his. He has, as we have sang earlier, reconciled you by his blood to be part of the family. The good, good father does not just want to use you. He wants to be with you. And that's the invitation of prayer. And as you pray, would you pray these things? Would you pray that our church would pray? Serious. Would you pray that our church would pray? Not just you, just like said said earlier, that we would pray for others around us, knowing that people are going through things. But would you pray that the tide within our church would shift such that we are far more dependent upon prayer, that we are far more trusting the Lord to move, that we are committed, devoted, steadfast in prayer. Because I'm convinced that whatever the Lord has for us behind that door, it will only open by prayer. Whatever the future, whatever the next chapter is, whatever the Lord wants to do through us, in us, and beyond us, only going to happen as we commit to pray, family. So would we pray? Number two, would you pray for vertical reconciliation? Would you pray for the many people who have come into this space and have been connected to our community who are not in right relationship with God to come to that spot of all-in saving faith? For them to say, the competing philosophies and spiritualities of our day are meaningless to me because Jesus is what I need. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the Lord of redemption. Only by him can I be reconciled to my maker Would you pray for that? Get on your knees and say, God, save people, please. Breathe spiritual life into dead and dry bones. And would you pray for horizontal reconciliation? For horizontal reconciliation. Y'all know our mission. We are on a mission to multiply diverse communities of disciples who live for the good of our city to the glory of God. And and I don't know if you realize this, but the rampant division, conflict, animosity in our city when it comes to economics, race, and ethnicity is not a natural problem. It's a spiritual one. This is one where it is not just sort of flesh and blood, people having issues. Of course people have issues. But this is an issue where spiritual bonds must be broken such that unity might be realized by the power of God. We're doing something that we can't do. And we need God to come through. So would you plead with him for a horizontal reconciliation and a gathering of this motley diverse crew on mission for Jesus such that a ripple effect would happen? One more time, Loveless. He says if all the regenerate church members of Western Christendom were to intercede daily. And then he goes on this long list for their family and their friends and their coworkers and their city and their churches and their denominations and their countries. If all of the Christians were to just intercede and pray, the transformation that would result would be incalculable. Friends, what opens the door to a gospel ripple effect?
It's nothing other than the dependent prayer of God's own people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge it is to my own self-reliance. I want so much less of the self-life and much more of the spirit life within me. I own my own need to grow as a dependent prayer and long for our church to be devoted, to be continuing steadfastly in prayer, to be watchful in it with thanksgiving, and to pray for the opening of doors in their lives, in their families, in their coworkers, in our city, in these neighborhoods. May you speed forward the work of the gospel such that a ripple effect happens. And we might tell stories then for years to come of the times when the gospel dropped and made waves. May you grace us with that kind of renewal. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.